0: here's the thing so there's lots and lots of different programs in quantum gravity um i don't take any of them seriously i think they all are you know have serious challenges in that um they they each begin with a kind of glimmer a, a kind of interesting intuition uh so every one of them i think has a kind of cool intuition that Kickstarts the program. Then there's a lot of math, and then people have to say things about that math. And so now they're uh, attaching what I think of as like proto interpretations to the math because you don't have fully worked out theories, and so you can't really attach a full interpretation to everything because you don't really know what's going on. But you kind of have an idea because you had that initial intuition about what's spark that triggered the theory and so you'll start attaching all this of all these concepts to different bits of math and so then what ends up happening is people will talk about uh well you know space and time discrete uh there's uh the emergence of time from no time and all of this kind of thing and you know i've worked in it, it it's a very interesting but I don't take much of it too, I don't take it too seriously, especially because we just don't have more worked out interpretations or, or more worked out theories. And so when it comes to the kind of time aspect of it, I do think of a lot of it is sort of more, um, how to put this, uh, it, it's more sort of extrapolation and thinking. thinking what, of what you want to see in the theory, than what is actually in the theory, and so, and so I don't think we're really. I mean, I've got friends who work a lot on philosophical issues in quantum gravity, and um, you know, they, they, um, I, don't uh, you know, maybe they take the kind of conclusions more more seriously than I do, uh, but I'm not really. I don't really see that you can take a a general
1: lesson from quantum gravity yet for time. Craig Callender's 2017 book, What's So Special About Time, is widely received as one of the best books written on the topic. Uh, I really think it's one of the best books you can go to for the philosophy of time. Uh, In it, he tries to see if there's a possible reconciliation between The picture of time that we get out of our best physics, the various pictures of time we get out of our best physics, and the picture of time that comes across in our subjective experience. Um, To do this, he consults not only the requisite physics and philosophy, but also the relevant cognitive science and cognitive psychology. Uh, Craig Callender is professor of philosophy at UC San Diego and co-director of the Institute for Practical Ethics. His work focuses on the philosophy of science with a focus on the philosophy of physics. Uh, here, we talked about time, a little bit about quantum gravity, uh, a really interesting paper he wrote on black holes and thermodynamics, and practical ethics. Uh, this is my conversation with Greg Callender. Just want to start off with, what what is the two times problem?
0: Oh, the two times problem uh, yeah, so I modeled that on Eddington's famous two uh, two tables problem. You know, so Eddington uh, said, "Well, look, there's the the manifest table. You know, it's solid, hard. Uh, you know, certain color. Uh, also, has all sorts of properties, all these microscopic properties that we attribute to it. And yet, then there's the the table of physics. It's mostly composed of air. Uh, you know, your hand." bounces off of it if you tap it because of electromagnetic forces not because it's hitting a bunch of stuff Um, and so you have to be able to try to reconcile these two tables and so I thought about thinking about uh, well I thought about when I was writing my book uh, uh, what makes time special I thought about you know the problem in a kind of similar way where we have manifest time and I was thinking this is not just exactly like what we perceive but more like our kind of the kind of model we use as we uh, navigate our life uh, uh, through time and so we employ this kind of rough and ready model and I think it's pretty basic I mean that is I I think it's uh, you know something so I was imagining something really low level you know not not like our theories of cosmology in it, or anything kind of very really high cognitive, uh, and then uh, you know physics and so f- f- physical time. F- uh, then I was thinking mostly just of you know relativity. Uh, I mean, who knows if relativity is the final story? But that seemed like the most natural piece of physics to use because that was the only relativity is really the only theory that takes time time as its target and so that then you know made me think to to use that and so then the idea was then how could i reconcile manifest time with physical time and so I then was off to the races on this kind of eddington like project and um, yeah and so then I, I i think i tried i tried to approach it in the way the way the way you would like the eddington project because I don't think, you know, you know, physics by itself, as we, you know, with, without having reduced all of the other sciences to physics, you're not going to answer that problem with just physics. And so you have to introduce more sciences and more resources. And I think, you know, I begin the book, if, uh, if you looked at it, then uh, I begin the book with, uh, you know, this um, discussion between Einstein and Carnap. Where Einstein laments that he says physics will never you know uh satisfactorily answer the problem of the now and he thinks this is what it sounds like from the thing he thinks this is you know a, shame, a pity a shame and and sad and then Carnap says yeah but you know if you add more sciences uh well the, the way I read him is if you add more sciences then you can and so in particular, Carnap points to psychology and so the second half of my book is a lot of cognitive science and biology in that
1: right so yeah i mean even though you're integrating the special sciences cognitive science psychology you you mentioned that it's still going from here to there we are going from whatever the best physical theory of time that can be made out to uh the perceptual experience of time rather than the other way around which is important uh, because i don't know if the other way around has any any real possibility to
0: you know so uh bergson uh the famous french philosopher i mean his phd in the late 1800s uh was an attempt to go the other way around Um, and so you do sometimes see uh work in phenomenology in that where you then try to get the time of physics out of the time of experience and you know to be uh i mean in, in, in their favor, you know in some sense that's gonna be what we're we're doing when we come up with physics because you know we we start off with all these observations, and the observations are done by people uh, ultimately, and so in some sense, this project happens, but uh yeah, the other way around is then uh. uh a challenge. I mean, they're both challenges, and so I didn't think of the Bergson project as really having succeeded. Uh, and I don't know if the project I had going the other way succeeds either. But uh, yeah, I give it my best, my best shot. Really, <laughs>
1: um, it, it, it's a lot more convincing. Is what I'll say. Um, okay. So before we proceed, just for people listening, do you mind uh, giving a quick definition of manifest time? What are the components that make up Manifest Time?
0: Yeah, so what I think of as Manifest Time is, um, uh, well, really sort of three components, you know, the, the, the way I, I mean, it could have started off many different ways, I think, in my book, but what I did was with the, with the book was I, I thought, I'm just going to start off with the now, you know, so that you think that there's this kind of special objective now, uh it's what's what's re- what's really happening so you know us us talking is now uh and from that you then also uh divide the world into you know this kind of tripartite structure then there's the stuff before the now and the stuff after the now and but it's not just that some of it's before and some of it's after it's that you attribute different properties to it so I, I think of the past as said old fixed the future is open, ripe with possibility. Um, and then of course you think that structure changes, it updates itself. And so the three components then are this kind of, uh, are, are the privilege now, uh, the fact that it updates, and as it updates, it's carrying along a past and a future with different properties. Um, you could imagine another structure in there, I mean, probably our model of time has more stuff. Uh, it's just that those are the things that seem interesting from the point of view of philosophy of time. Is those are the features that are just hard to hard to find in physical time, and that seem to be distinctive versus space. So no one thinks that the here. So we've got the here and the there, the left and the right no one's, no one thinks that those categories carve up nature in some fundamental way, and we don't attribute you know different features of the world to the right than the, you know we don't say the right is fixed and the left is uh open or anything like that and none of those things are important to us i mean the 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 key thing with the manifest time is that you yeah, know, well, oh boy, that, that is really important to us. You know, so it shows up in all of our language, thought and behavior and is arguably like a key part of what makes a human being a human being. Uh, so it's of interest to explain all that stuff.
1: Right. And, and like, just as a side before moving moving forward, um, it's also true that that experience of time, like those three things in manifest time are, are universal amongst people. Like there have been some claims from sociology and stuff that that there's differences in time perception, but um, yeah.
0: So yeah, I, I haven't received, I, I thought I would receive more pushback actually on that than I have. I mean, maybe the people who would do the pushback ha- haven't really seen the books, uh, but yeah, so there's all this work on, and cognitive linguistics, anthropology, on uh, variation of, um time a uh, concept of time within human beings and but what i point out in the book is that actually mo- most of that uh research actually indirectly is an argument for the invariance of manifest or the universality of manifest time because most of that work is sort of looking at ways we represent manifest time differing in different cultures and so if and so in for English speakers uh, in the, you know, in, in America, you know, uh, this direction is, is the future, that direction's the past, you know, in other cultures that direction's the future, this one's the past. Some of this work is super interesting because some of it, you know, so we're uh, used to uh, represent, you know, so these are spatial representations of time and we're used to that, those, well, we in the US, anyway, our, our English speakers, are used to them being um, egocentric, but of course there are some cultures where they're, where they're topocentric, where it depends on the local geography. And so it's very interesting to think about the conversation patterns, because, you know, like if we were facing each other, our futures, our, our spatially represented futures conflict with each other, like I, like I would point into you into your chest, or you would point into my chest. Of course, if there's a river in the village that determines it, you know, then we both point in the same way for the past. And uh, anyway, so a lot of interesting stuff, but, but all that, really, all that variation, as far as I could tell, just shows that um, manifest time, at, at least in the way I'm understanding it, where it's a kind of very low level thing, is, um, is universal. You're not going to find people who think that uh you know if they hit a switch it's going to change where they were born or you know none of that is found what is found also is you know the more high level of cognitive you go you know so if we think of manifest time and just think of putting more and more cognitive theoretical stuff into it well then of course there's going to be massive variation because well there's even variation among you know top physicists about the cosmology right so uh if we throw in enough stuff you know we'll have and of course we'll have fine groups who have you know uh will believe in like cyclical time versus non-cyclical time and things like that but that's all kind of high level theory where which wasn't really what i was aiming at
1: yeah i agree I, like the i really like the literature on timekeeping, like clock towers and things and how they played a role it's just about for people listening uh, about how the how when uh, colonial societies bought clock towers into settler societies they that created a new dynamic of how people interacted with time sociologically. But I think that is far different from like the manifest phenomenal experience of time versus having some social value or practices against around it. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, yeah I'm reading actually some book. I just started reading this book, which is on. Kind of history of well, transformation of timekeeping and that um, yeah, I love that literature uh, as well.
1: Okay, OK, so then we go from universal manifest time to try to find that anywhere in physics, and specifically go through relativity well classical physics, but relativity, quantum mechanics and some of the approaches to quantum gravity. Uh, and, and there's nothing. There's no manifest time never pops up. And and it's in fact hostile to the idea of manifest time.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, I think you know, even even if we just, yeah. Uh, you know, so uh, even if we just suppose we just stuck with classical physics, you know. So there you've got Newtonian physics. There you have a well-defined simultaneity relation. So it's a it's objective, absolute what things are simultaneous with what things. Even even there, you don't find manifest time, you know. So sometimes people say, "Oh, you know, uh, you know, manifest time got you know hurt by, you know, well for special relativity, you know, gets rid of an absolute simultaneity. General relativity, then you've got you know solutions where you don't even you can't even draw a single uh, global uh, uh, global space like entirely space like surface." And then you've got all these people saying quantum gravity, there's no time at all, and so then it looks like a kind of modern thing that there's this conflict between physics and manifest time, because the, those three successive alleged hits uh, come in, in you know 20th century. But but really, you know, even if you're just looking at New, Newtonian time, uh, you know, which which time, you know, that doesn't say which time is the now it doesn't tell you that there's a difference between past, present, and future. Um, so, you know, what I thought of it really is, you know, I, th- I just think in terms of the whole problem is really you've got these didactic concepts. So right. <clears throat> deixis di- di- is uh, the, the word for uh, uh, pointing. And so, you know, so, you, so if I think of it this way, I think of it like Well, physics gives us all these kind of uh, uh, different bits of geometry to represent uh, space and time. So, you know, distances, order, dimensionality, things like this. And of course that changes, you know, so when we move from classical physics to relativity, it changes and then maybe it'll change more with quantum gravity. Now to actually use any of those physical models, then you need, the the pointing concepts yeah i need to then put in um a now and a here and a a left and a right and things like that but yeah the curious thing about time though is that we, we we take those pointing concepts seriously with time but not with space and by seriously i mean we take them to be objective uh and so no one thinks that the the the, the spatial ones are, are objective right like if i said uh asher pass me the salt you know it's it's on your left uh at, at dinner well what what your left already just indicates uh that uh, i understand that, that it's left and right is due to a didactic center your perspective and it's just immediate that it's uh, uh not an objective feature of the world. I mean, heck, when you're looking out at the world, you could sort of see your nose a little bit, right? Spatially, right? Especially, right? <laughs> In your uh, so you you know that this is kind of your your concepts of left and right and stuff are perspective, you know, pres- related to your perspective. But the weird thing about time is that you know you don't really like see your nose with, with time. <laughs> and you there's there's nothing indicating that the time that the now that these uh pointing features are anything but objective and but yet physics doesn't require them at all so even newtonian physics doesn't require them
1: right and i and i mean like to get to an objective definition of time through well, through newtonian physics relativity quantum mechanics and, and quantum gravity um like i'm totally lost I, I, it just seems like A mixed bag of various definitions of time, and the work is still left to do.
0: Uh, Yeah, so I think even if uh, yes, I go through uh, all these times, ways of trying. You know, so it's all all these philosophers and physicists who, who, because they think the problem is really about relativity, are trying to find something like simultaneity and in relativity, or a kind of preferred foliation, or something like that. And so pretty skeptical of those things too, that they'll work in any way. Um, But, uh, but even if they found something, you know, it would be just as, you know, the best they could do is get something like classical physics. Uh, And even then that wouldn't really solve the two times problem. Unless they could further show why that, why, why that, uh, you know, why that, Simultaneity that they want to dub the present actually plays the role in my experience of as the present or explains any of my temporal experience.
1: Right. So even if you could find an objective, unified measure of time, uh, you would still need to do the cognitive science and the cognitive psychology of why we have an experience of it in that way.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, suppose that, you know, you just, I mean, you could solve the problem easily, you know, if the way it's set up by some people, right? Yeah, I could say, Asher, just, you know, tell me some, just grab some set of events and call it the present. And you say, okay, <laughs> you know, it's, and you draw a little circle on, you know, you pick out a volume on, in a space-time diagram and say, that's the present. And I'll say, well, okay, you've solved the problem, but you haven't solved the problem <laughs> because, you know, what is that present doing? How How does it affect... Uh why would a human being sense that thing, and why would it be um important in any way
1: right okay. okay okay uh shifting gears a bit. then going to the cognitive science uh what's the story that we find there
0: a super interesting one and uh you know, the, the the first that I had when I started looking at uh the cognitive science uh, of because I was starting off at the present, so I was looking at the kind of construction of the present. Uh, so, well, if we're thinking about the way our experience is, we've got these kind of uh, experiences where things haven't yet fallen into memory, nor are they part of what's anticipated. And so we've got these these pr- subjective presents. And now what are these things and how are they constructed? And I did a lot of work on this, as, and it's super interesting. And the first thing I thought of was, uh, well, you could actually make a kind of like that argument in relativity against uh, uh, kind of the uh, theories like presentism, which say that the only the, only the, only the, pre- only the present is real. Uh, you could do a kind of psychology version of those things, because it turns out that you know, no two people put together the their subjective presence the same. So if I look at that, look at the way I'm putting together the present, you know, it's it's absolutely remarkable. And instead of going through all the details, uh, often in talks I'll just give the example uh, an example I use in the in the book, which is of this uh, pilot uh, who's was a he had a kind of. Yeah, I forget where the lesion was, but he had a small operation and he was uh, in, the, in, the, in the research paper that I think they talk about, he, he was at home with his, no, he was at his daughter's house and he was recuperating from the operation. And she came home from work and saw that he had taken apart the televisions and, because he thought that the audio and, vi, audio and visual were out of sync. And then he, you know, was talking to her, and also noticed that it was her. And so then they noticed that it was him who was out of sync, not the, the televisions and stuff. And so it's interesting is that if you did a, um, um, you know, one of the kind of standard uh, tests of of, you know, when you know, so you can you can measure subjective simultaneity in different ways by. You know, I could do, give you two signals with certain lag and ask if they happen at the same time or not. I can ask, do a temporal order judgment, which one happened first. So there's all these kind of standard paradigms, that, experimental paradigms that uh, are used in psychology uh, to look at subjective simultaneity. And what's interesting about him is that he, uh, he was sound firster. So, our, so sound is slow, light is fast but our ears are very fast and our eyes are very slow. Uh, you know, if you had a signal at about 12 meters away from you that emitted light and sound, then if we took into account all those latencies, then, you know, it should hit your cortex at the same same time when you're about 12 meters away. Uh, but of course, you know, when we, you know, when somebody comes up close to you, we still their lips the the visual image of the lips still matches the sounds. And when they go far away from you, as long as you can still see their lips, they still match. So our brain is doing a lot of work in terms of um, matching the the signals. Anyway, the retired pilot, he had, uh, he would hear, so if you came up to him and said, hi, this could be wrong, I mean, viewers would have to go check I could have it the wrong way around but it's been a while but I think it was, I think he was a sound firster and so he would hear you say hi and then see your lips move and he would consciously notice the lag and so I think there was a 210 millisecond lag between his uh here you know see hearing you say hi and then the the, the lips moving and well, I always thought that it should be somebody like him because I knew we were putting together things like this. And I always thought, well, if there's something the brain does, there's always the chance that the the brain breaks in some way. And so I thought, well, there should be somebody like him. And then it it was like an a priori prediction of this man. (laughs) Uh, and anyway, uh, this is a good example of we're all doing this. And so when the when the experimenters then put other people uh, who did not complain about, you know, noticing a lag into the uh, into the lab, I think about a third of people could no- consciously notice the lag between uh, the audio and the visual and these kinds of signals. And in fact, some of them were light firsters, some were sound firsters. And so some people, some people didn't notice it. Actually, were like 200 milliseconds the other way. These are huge distances now. So if we added, so suppose you were 200 milliseconds sound firster, and I was 200 milliseconds light firster. Now that we've got 400 milliseconds, uh, you know, discrepancy between the two. So I'm trying to think of, so that that's like almost. so in in American baseball, that's almost the 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 time it takes for the ball to go from the pitcher's mound to the, the catcher. So it's definitely a conscious.
1: Oh you know, yeah, significant.
0: It's, uh, and yeah, we would not notice in a conversation that uh, you know this discrepancy. I think it's just because you know the stuff that's interesting isn't labeled and moving that fast. In front of us, and when we have things that are fast, we you know, so if I if I do this, and we are in the same room, well, then the noise is produced when this the finger hits the fat part of the thumb. So some of us might see might hear the noise when they're actually still processing the, the vision up there where the finger is up higher. Others where it's been sitting there for a little while. Yeah, everyone's going to agree that the sound came from the snap. You know the what you know no one's going to disagree really unless i, I put a huge lag um and so we don't we, we don't really notice that much but we're all living on our own li- yeah so here's then the pictures of so for that patient ph if you asked them you know what you know what uh is your now do you have a now and is your now special They'd say yeah yeah but then if you ask them to catalog the content of the events that are in his now, it would then differ from yours, right? Because his, he's gonna include, you're, you're gonna include you know his daughter saying hi and her lips moving both on the same now. He's not. But now if we actually had like really precise labels on all the events, we'd find that everybody everybody's inventory of their special nows are are different and so they're not that special I mean so they're they're all sp- in some sense they're all special but they're you know it's like the well Steve Savick in, in a different context uh, you know has this uh you know Gilbert and Sullivan uh uh song in mind where you know if everybody's special nobody's special <laughs> uh so uh, anyway, yeah, so cognitive science is then giving this kind of picture where, of you know, basically how you construct these kind of nows uh, takes time. There's a lot of interesting temporal illusions. Uh, maybe it's inter- maybe it's different for different animals. You know, I, I, in the book, I keep joking, you know, that the you know maybe the giraffe has not only a long now, but a, uh, I mean, a, not only a long neck, but a long now. Uh, because the, you know, the nerves, you know, the, the, the speed along the nerves is, is, is really not that fast. And, you know, their, their head is like nine feet from their hooves. So as they're running and their hooves are trying to navigate the ground, they've got all those signals going back and forth. It's quite, quite a big lag. I mean, I don't know how much of that is conscious versus, you know, when we, when we run and when we run, we're not conscious of, Adjusting our feet, either, but um, or we well we can be if we want to be, but we went not to be. <laughs> uh, anyway, you know you can then imagine that this kind of you can then start to see if you think of different animals and stuff uh, the kind of pressures that would lead to forming uh, subjective simultaneity of in certain sorts of windows for certain types of systems. And so then I think of this as this, this kind of evolved best best way of uh you know if our if, if our food if we had to if we had to if, we, if if to get food or to run away from predators, we had to uh, you know, maybe in in some other worlds you could imagine maybe it made sense to have a, a smaller, tighter simultaneity window know, others, you know, a larger one, there's pros and cons of each.
1: Uh, right. And it's a complicated evolutionary literature, I'm sure. Yeah. That makes sense. I think, like, you need a theory of self that seems adaptive. And then it seems adaptive to model that theory of self along the lines of manifest time. Because mm-hmm. it would help you escape predators and, and get food.
0: That's right. And then the other aspects, you know, well, if that thing isn't updating, you know, you're you're in big trouble. If you're, if you're still processing uh, the, the tiger roaring at you, and you know, an hour later, uh, you know, you're not gonna. Those creatures that had that those that didn't update their simultaneity the windows t- tended to die off pretty fast. I would imagine. And then and then you, of course you have tons of resources from physics for then um, explaining other aspects, because you are know, throwing this embedded subject into the world. but that world has already got like a, you know, a thermodynamic asymmetry, and it's got all these other features to it. Uh, you know the time-like direction is one-dimensional, the space-like directions are three-dimensional. it's all these so I think of all this kind of physics is already well. A what, what, one thing that's important is I, I think it's then a mistake to say that like that relativity spatializes time or, or something like that because there's so many differences still. And then you what you try to do is marshal the how those differences would make it them would um, show themselves in a in a person who is going around navigating life with this kind of. Who's updating these kind of special presents? And then, you know, what they're going to find is that they, that when they make decisions in those presents, you know, they can affect, um, they can affect uh, things in the future, but not the past. And that's not due to them. That's due to living in a you know, thermodynamic universe. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. They can't help but go through time. Right, right. Do you I know you mentioned this in the book, but do you think there's any kind of a problem in in how people in cognitive science and cognitive psychology model time? Because they're just kind of taking a a straightforward view of time and then there's the whole problem of is it begging the question or yeah, what do you think about that?
0: Yeah. Um Yeah, no, I get asked this all the time where, you know, so traditional philosophers of time you know they're they're brought up thinking about the debate as um, well I'm old enough so that when it when when I started this that uh you know it was very much sort of language saturated debate where the idea was you know can I explain can I get um, can I get tense language from a from tenseless language and if I couldn't, then that meant, you know, that in the metaphysics of the world, there was tense. That whole debate is we- should be viewed as weird because, you know, tense is a linguistic feature. And so what, well, how the heck you could go from a bunch of premises about language and then have a conclusion about metaphysics is, you know, it just seems bad, me- bad methodology. Um then later, you know, it gets sort of uh, that debate gets uh, sort of updated a, a bit, but still, you know, I mean, we, you you know, it's like a mugs game, you know, so you, you don't want to play it because you, you're going to lose for sure. But it does, but you, but you, but losing doesn't mean you lose. That is, we know that you can't get, um. You know, I can't get, I, I can't explain in lexical language. In terms of non-indexical language, and so if the whole game was set up so that you know, if you, you your your theory of time is wrong, physics is wrong. It's incomplete about time. Why? Because you can't get in, uh, indexical stuff from non-indexical stuff. Well, that you know that that sucks because you know because we know you can't do that, and so you know by setting up the 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 game that way you know it's set up so that you always you know the the one side always won um so now how does that relate to the question you asked me that relates because you know so what i didn't do and i just basically ignored because i i found it just beneath me uh (laughs) was uh, (laughs) you know uh the idea of trying to detensify all all language right. to remove all indexicals from all of all of language and so people will say to me well Craig you know you you've got some nerve you know you're using all this all this time from biology and cognitive science and psychology and you didn't purify it and well and so what can I say I you know I, I just say well you know I fess up you know that I didn't I didn't I didn't purify all of the language of the of all of the all of the language of all of time wherever time is used in all of science but now no, even even if there was a real obje- a serious objection here that would then change things because the argument because now the argument would not be um you know so now maybe the argument would have to be something like oh you know cognitive science really requires a uh, tensed uh time and you know now you have to before your explanation can go forward you you need to detense it well if that's so that would then change the argument a bit i mean most of these experiments and theories i'm talking about do make do with just with clock time and so if you could so then you'd have to show that somehow tense stuff is sneaking in into clock time Anyway, if I back way up, I mean, I I, I do think you know. So I, I don't think you'd be able to do it. Uh, I, I I I I am sympathetic to the view that we as representatives uh, kind of um, use tense. I mean, it's so we're not going to get it. We're not going to find a a view of ourselves outside of ourselves, where, where, we, where tense is completely removed. But on the other hand, that doesn't mean that it, you have to believe that it's some sort of metaphysical um, feature of, of the world because we know we don't for space. Um, so I don't think that there's a special here, but of course there's also a, a here that's uh, this irreducible part of me, my representation the world and I can't get rid of that either I don't get rid I didn't get rid of that in college either or biology um and yet we don't believe in it so unless you have a really kind of strange view that there's your kind of tensor of space and personal pronouns you know there's also the the I and the I and the Craig <laughs> uh so there are two of me uh, or yeah, so I don't have too, so I don't have too much sympathy with that objection, but I but I hear it a lot.
1: No, I mean, I think part of the challenge here it might just be sociological, in that nobody really knows whose problem this is to deal with. Because um, on one end you think it's physicists, and then another you think it's philosophers, and another you think it's it's scientists. But uh, like just the volumes that you you wrote on them, they they had phenomenologists, they had physicists, they had philosophers, and you do need to go through all the muddy details to get the picture and and just to pose the objection to say that any one person needs to purify time to be able to use it. It's just, that's an insane, insane project to, to take on.
0: Yeah. Uh, but also the one that I think you're bound to lose and <laughs> for principled reasons. And it wouldn't, uh, and since you're already, don't, uh, don't hold that standard to space and personal pronouns, then it seems, uh, unnecessary.
1: Right. Okay. So seeing the philosophy of time as this debate between tensed and non-tense time, then is is not a helpful way to proceed anymore. Um, do you think we should shift away to just seeing cognitive time and then looking at time as the physics tells us to be?
0: Is it quite, well, I think I misheard the, and hear the beginning of the question. Uh, so the the question, uh, should we shift to cognitive time instead of manifest time?
1: No, no. Uh, the question is just that. Uh, like in in my very novice understanding of the philosophy of time, it's kind of been this debate between tense time and non tense time, or presentist and eternalist theories. Um, is that characterization in itself wrong? Um, and does it benefit from looking at the cognitive picture more clearly?
0: Yeah. So. Uh, you know, that's what I tried to do in the book was just not really talk about tense versus tenses. And so, yeah, there I, 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 well, I hope it came through because you know sometimes the 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 loudest statement is what you don't say. And so what I tried to do is well up until the end, I have to go off against the philosophy of time in the final chapter, but up until then I don't really talk about it too much. And um uh, yeah, it's because I think that that's not a very profitable way of thinking about the, the whole debate. Uh, you know, so we've got this kind of manifest time model. Can we, it's important to us. Can we explain it? Um, and not have everything be about, I mean, because we know, you know, because the problem of the ind- essential indexical, if we have that kind of hovering over us, that sort of tells us what things we can and can't, what things we can't expect to do and so d- just don't set up the setting up the game that setting up the the project that way is just setting it up for this unattainable goal and it's not that interesting you know it's it's a kind of crazy goal when you step back and think about it and so but that doesn't mean that there's not something super interesting about time i mean i do think of it as like right up there with consciousness as one of the the big problems um so yeah so i i purposely didn't talk about it much as a way of trying to show that you could still do philosophy of time without just talking about tense versus tenseless
1: that did come across what what also really did come across was how serious of a problem time is um and how like like how interesting it is in comparison to consciousness specifically shifting shifting gears but uh in, in the various approaches to quantum gravity. Uh, this may be a really broad question, but what do you think the picture for philosophy of time is looking like? I,
0: I have, uh, I, yeah, I don't, I don't really know. And well, I have opinions, uh, but uh, I don't really know. You know, so here's, here's the thing. So there's lots and lots of different programs in quantum gravity. Um, I don't take any of them seriously. I think they all are you know have serious challenges in that um they they each begin with a kind of glimmer a, a kind of interesting intuition uh so every one of them i think has a kind of cool intuition that kick-starts the program then there's a lot of math and then people have to say things about that math and so now they're uh, attaching what I think of as like proto interpretations to the math because you don't have fully worked out theories. And so you can't really attach a full interpretation to everything because you don't really know what's going on. You kind of have an idea because you had that initial intuition about what's spark that triggered the theory. And so you'll start attaching all, this of, all these concepts to different bits of math. And so then what ends up happening is people will talk about, uh, well, you know, space and time discrete. Uh, there's uh, the emergence of time from no time and all of this kind of thing. And, you know, I've worked in it. it it's, it's very interesting, but I don't take much of it. Too, I don't take it too seriously, especially because we just don't have more worked out interpretations or, or more worked out theories. And so... When it comes to the kind of time aspect of it, I do think of a lot of it is sort of more, um, how to put this, uh, it, it's more sort of extrapolation and thinking, thinking what of what you wanna see in the theory than what is actually in the theory. And so, and so I don't think we're really, I mean, I've got friends who work a lot on philosophical issues in quantum gravity and um you know they they um i i uh that maybe they take the kind of conclusions more more seriously than i do Uh, but i'm not really i don't really see that you can take a a general lesson from quantum gravity yet for time you know so so what i'm trying to say is you know, a lot of people go around saying, you know, oh, well, quantum gravity is timeless, fundamentally timeless. And then you would find this emergent time from it or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, is that really true? You know, I, I don't know. You know, the, the, the theories are so uh, in their kind of baby baby stages still. So it's, it's really hard to take that too seriously because it, it could be that <clears throat> You know, resolving some of the challenges that these theories face ends up putting a time right right in at the beginning, or it could or, or or not. I don't know, uh, but we'll see. Uh, other other theories they'll put make just make the assumptions right away, you know, so like something like causal set theory just assumes it's all discrete. They can't really say that they find discreteness. They just assume it. If the theory works, then we could work. Then we could do a kind of reverse generalization, you know, generalize from it, uh, and then say, ah, well, you know, turns out that that was a good, uh, you know, if, if that theory, you know, it was massively successful, then we could turn around and say, ah, oh, that's some sort of indirect evidence that space and time are discrete. But since we're like far, 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 far from saying that theory is successful. We're far, far, far from doing that sort of look back and saying that it was really discrete. So some people think discreteness is a key to going forward. Other people don't. Um, Other theories are like not that clear. There's talk about discreteness a lot, but then there's a lot of functions defined over continuous stuff. (laughs) So it's, yeah, it's kind of a, a free for all.
1: Yeah, the, the ontology is all over the place. Um, do you think? Do you think there's any more clarity in in the interpretations of quantum mechanics? There, you might have stronger intimations one way or the other about where time might end up.
0: Well, yeah. So, I mean, quantum mechanics has like a, a couple of big advantages of a quantum gravity. We, we, you know, at a of course we've got all the experimental evidence that and the theory, so we know the theories. We know the theories work, uh, and the um, other thing is, you know, so the, there's certain bits of the theory that are um, crucial in all the different interpretations, and so you could look at some, you know, if we were looking at in the non-relativistic realm, we could look at the Schrödinger equation, and then now you could see that the Schrödinger equation uses you know, what type of time does this Schrodinger equation use? And then it just uses a um, a good old classical time. If we then go to a, a relativistic quantum mechanics, you know, not not general relativistic and quantum gravity, but special relativistic, then now we might have a kind of, you know, it's very hard to do for curved surfaces. And so that, you know, so mostly we'll be using a good old Minkowskian type time. Um, And so you know there now there might then still be differences between the different interpretations. So famously, the you know the Bohm interpretation, the Bohm interpretation is hard to make relativistic. I think some Bohmians would just be happy to live with that and just say, well, yeah, there's a kind of preferred foliation. Uh, With uh, spontaneous collapse theories like GRW, you can have some non-Schrödinger. Some modifications to Schrodinger evolution. Maybe that modification matters. Oops, sorry, I've got the dogs about to go
1: off. Oh, false oh, alarm. That was bad. Uh, and sorry, no words. Uh, uh okay. I think
0: maybe we're good. Um uh, we're good. Okay. let's see where was i oh yeah so quantum mechanics and yeah so well we might yeah so so there could be still surprises with quantum mechanics because as we interpret those interpretations more we might find out more uh about time and there might be more disagreements on that um so well, well well so we'll see uh but there is but, th- but there you at least have, you've got greater clarity, at least with all the interpretations, you have a lot of clarity about what, what the formal stuff means. So the interpretations are interpretations of the formalism. And so you've got more complete, complete interpretation of each of, of each of the main ones that I, I, I'm thinking about. Um, and you have a lot of commonality in what they say about time. And you have, all, of course, all the experimental evidence vindicating the theory. Uh, so, so the situation is quite different, although still in a bit of flux. Yeah.
1: Um, just as a side, are there are there any interpretations you tend to favor?
0: Yeah, I've been, you know, a kind of uh, uh, card-carrying Bohmian for my entire uh, career, I, I, I suppose. Uh, so. I did my PhD at at Rutgers, and there are a bunch of Bohmians there. Took a, I think it was a year long class in the math department with uh, Sheldon Goldstein, who's one of the top Bohmians. So, sort of learned the theory. And some one of the, so I had, in some way, the the weirdest uh, education because I actually took that. Uh, I think a year long class in the graduate class in the math department on Bohmian mechanics before I took quantum mechanics. And so I'm one of the few people in the world who learned quantum physics in a Bohmian way before learning the, you know, the sort of normal standard interpretation, if you want to call it that, (laughs) or standard mess uh, that is usually taught in a physics class. yeah, so I've had that. So I was almost, uh, yeah, was sort of raised above me because I I learned it first.
1: Right. That's that's a really fun thing about talking to philosophers. They all have such weird paths to wherever they end up. To. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. Uh. Okay. Shifting gears a bit. Uh. I I saw you wrote a paper on on black hole thermodynamics and well more generally. How thermodynamics and the weak analogy with the foundations of stat is maybe maybe room to be skeptical. So you explain that a bit.
0: Yeah. So it's uh, well, maybe if we step back for a second, you know. So you know, so you've got all these programs of quantum gravity, and then they're trying to find things that they want to that that, that they need to explain, and people look to different features and think of them as these kind of clues to a theory of quantum gravity, and, you know, lacking any observational data for a theory of quantum gravity, a lot of the quantum gravity programs then try to find, see if they can explain these clues instead of actual data, uh, so it's sort of like a, almost like a data substitute, and so a lot of gr- groups try to explain then this theory, which is uh, called black hole thermodynamics, and That black hole thermodynamics, you know, points out all these different analogies between ordinary thermodynamics, which is, you know, the science of steam engines and stuff like that, and entropy, temperature, pressure, volume, that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, how efficient steam engines can be. Then point out various analogies with that and then black holes. And, yeah, that's fine as far as it goes. But then... Many people say it's not a, just an analogy; it's an identity. That there are these thermodynamic principles that explain, you know, why you can get only so much uh, work out of a steam engine, you know, in in some factory, and that that also explains black holes, the features of black holes. Uh, so the claim is so I. I think it's important to see the, how radical the claim is. So the claim isn't just that, you know, black holes that are there objects in the universe and all the objects in the universe are thermodynamic, right? So, so stars, for instance, so before a star falls into a black hole, it's got, there's a hell of a lot of thermodynamics going on there and very interesting thermodynamics. Um, and so the claim isn't that, you know, so of course the star is a thermodynamic object if now that's the star, you know, uh, gets a certain um, mass and density and uh, such that it now turns into a black hole, well, it still is a thermodynamic object. But the idea is that there's these laws of black hole thermodynamics and that these things are identical with thermodynamics. And, you know, when you first come across this, You know, so this is viewed with almost universal assent. you know, everyone believes it and when I look at it, I, you know, of course, a lot of people say, well, that that is really weird because, you know, the analogies are, are mostly this kind of geometric features of black holes that are then being linked with thermodynamics. And then I think, well, in thermodynamics, I know why thermodynamics works, or at least I think I do, and it's because of statistical mechanics. I've got a bunch of little particles, or maybe it's fields, but I've got a bunch of little particles banging around, and there's certain ways of them being arranged that are more likely than others, and that's what's going on, and then that's why, uh, that's why, um, you know, if I bring two iron bars together at one hot, one cold, they'll go to room temperature because there's more ways of going... In, there's more ways of being in equilibrium than being non, non, non-equilibrium. But now there's of course nothing like stat for black holes. I mean, they try to invent it with a lot of quantum gravity stuff. So in quantum mm-hmm. gravity, they'll say, oh, it goes statistical mechanical explanation from string theory or something for it. But you know that, that black hole thermodynamics was around well before people believed that there was this identity even before any of that stuff happened. And so, you know, what what is the, you know, so it's kind of a mystery as to why there would be this. And then what I try to do is in the paper is try to push on the analogy and try to show that it's not really that analogous. So if I really, yeah, so now I could like, think about thermodynamics, not as just the couple of its laws, but really think about thermodynamics, like what actually it's saying, you know, in a more full-blooded sense. And then when I do, you'll find that then you don't have analogies to a lot of what happens in black hole thermodynamics. Um, but, you know, so some of it is just such a weird puzzle, you know, so like, shouldn't volume, you know, so, uh, so volume figures importantly in ordinary thermodynamics, but then volume... Uh, well, areas then viewed as uh, areas viewed as the temperature black hole thermodynamics black hole areas viewed as the temperature, but then of course there's an analytic relationship between the area and the volume, and so, shouldn't volume and black hole thermodynamics be volume in thermodynamic be the counterpart of volume? But no, it isn't. So they'll suggest some other thing, and then you think, well, what if volume isn't volume and and vo- and I mean, so just trying to think about it, it, it's really kind of hard to then think. Well, how is this thing that's just one dimension off the area now is the, the is the now the entropy, and now I try to make sense of some thermodynamic law like PV equals nRT. Uh, you know, it all just it all kind of falls apart, and it gets it gets really messy. And but then you know, it, there are all these other issues too, which is that. Well, I mean, one big one that I think is, would be recognized and accepted by physicists, which is, what the heck is the black hole in the first place? Because the original black hole thermodynamics used, um, used, uh, you know, just this sort of global notion of of a black hole, which then has all these kind of weird properties. I mean, so the event horizon is not an observable, you know, the event horizon might have just floated right between a, uh, well, right, you might have just fallen into one or we both might have just fallen into one uh, without knowing, you know, so it, it's not like in the movie Event Horizon where like there's a lot of drama. It doesn't have to be. <laughs> this is more like an after the fact drawing on the diagram of figuring out where the Event Horizon is, depends what, on what will happen later too, what falls in later. And so there's this kind of weird teleological feature to it too and so yeah what exactly is then the black hole so what the what kind the counterpart of the thermodynamic system and so the paper just kind of point out all these kind of weird things if you really take the analogy to be an identity and you take that seriously um, but yeah I still get emails you know so I, I think the paper has mostly been ignored uh, and uh, a lot of people really don't like it, uh, you know, because it kind of challenges this kind of, I mean, it really is like a kind of dogma in the quantum gravity community. And it challenges that, Um, but you know, I do get, I just want to report here on the podcast. I I do get, and in fact, I I, I continue to get them. And in fact, I just got one a couple of days ago from physicists who teach thermodynamics and statistical mechanics. They send me emails and say, yeah, I agree with you. I've always thought it was all, you know, not really thermodynamics or statistical mechanics. Uh, I teach that stuff and it just doesn't seem to be the same. Uh, so I agree with you, but, you know, I never felt like I would come out and say it.
1: <laughs> oh, man, uh, that's tragic.
0: So that, that warms my heart is receiving these emails.
1: It, it surprised me that it didn't come from SnapMac, that that idea didn't come from, sorry, not SnapMac, from um, quantum gravity, because you would think that it's around because it's useful for people building their models. But no, it uh, just it was there before.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh yeah, Beckenstein and Hawking in the early early 70s sort of noticed these kind of links. Um, I mean I think what's really going on is it's it's part of the the information theorization of physics. Yeah. So what you have is um you know this idea that uh you know, something falls into the black hole and now you don't know about it anymore. Uh, well, so is that a challenge in any way, you know? I mean, suppose I throw some laundry in the closet and I close the door. Yeah, now, now, now but now suppose the door is just such that, you know, it's got a really good lock, so I can't get by it. Uh, does does this mean that the the information is lost to the world? Or it's just lost to me and so I think you have this kind of uh, these kind of um, information loss type arguments pervading through quantum gravity and it's all this kind of informationization of physics where uh, you know you think that the information loss in some ways is a is a real challenge but I don't think it I don't think it need to be. it's just you know you just need to be humble and realize that not all, you you know some observers won't have you know even in principle uh, you know uh, fully extended world lines might not have access to everything. Um, I mean, I think there might be problems where you know where we think of information not as just sort of inaccessible, but but gone, you know, so, so suppose we took a space-time, suppose you took like Minkowski's space-time and just cut out a hole and So there's just the topological, just gone, you know, some bits of it are gone. And now I've got a, uh, now suppose I had a, a pair of particles in a, in a uh, singlet state, so they're in a superposition and the two particles are going along, but then one just falls into the open manhole <laughs> cover of space-time, you know, so that it's just, boom, they're just gone. Now, what is the state of the other one? You know, now I would, you know, so if I just didn't know about that, I might trace out that information and give people put a state on the, the, the other one. Uh, but then I would think of that as just sort of epistemic because I don't know what's going on over there now if it really did fall into the open manhole cover of space time well now it's not just epistemic you know it's gone then we don't have a theory about how to write that other state you know I mean we'd still write a uh, trace out that information but now that wouldn't couldn't be viewed as just epistemic anymore there'd be some kind of you know uh, objective ontological thing we'd have to say uh, but then that is just to say we don't have a theory of quantum gravity, really.
1: Yeah, you need some, you need to build some math and ontology to describe it. We just don't have it, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, just to end it off, um, I want to ask you how how did you get interested in ethics?
0: Oh, uh, I guess a couple of different things, you know. So, well, one is that I've always taught environmental ethics. So I taught environmental ethics, I, I think for the first time in 1994, uh, when I was a graduate sc- student. And then when I came to San Diego, I started teaching it again. Um, and so I've always had that interest. Part of it was because I do phlo- you know, was doing mostly just philosophy of physics. And, you know, I, I wouldn't even I wouldn't even think about a space time with matter in it, and never mind people and problems and, and societies and, and all that stuff. And so I wanted uh, to have, you know, a kind of—I uh, don't want to say more meaningful imp- uh, footprint on the undergraduate teaching, but uh, a, a kind of bigger one that's than just philosophy of science and philosophy of physics. Anyway, uh, yeah. So I, I, I so I've taught for decades, uh, environmental ethics and other topics like that. But then I had this opportunity. I mean, I always kind of had it in the back of my mind to sort of turn the not have a kind of separation between the teaching and the research in that area. But I never, for the longest time, I couldn't get myself worked up by a kind of ethics issues because, well, enough to do research because I would always just think, well you know, I'd look at some problem in society, and think, well, you know, such and such is just evil. <laughs> and, you know, it's just sort of bad politics or 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 that. And it, it it wasn't like a fundamental puzzle, like, you know, so you look at Schrodinger's cat, Schrodinger's cat alive and dead, and you you think, whoa, you know, now that's a problem. <laughs> and, you know, whereas you think, look at some other thing, you think, well, you know, this is because there's so much inequality in the world or something. and. This, that that's the solution, you know, <laughs> or something. That, there should be more equality. But anyway, uh, yeah. Then I I had an opportunity to uh, I was getting more and more. Maybe it was this midlife crisis, but wanting to wanting to move more into this kind of applied applied area, uh, and also applied philosophy of science. I think has been on the rise. So if you think of work by Kitcher and all the people who have been influenced by Kitcher, you see a lot more applied philosophy of science. And so I always thought that there should be more of this work. I mean, look at all the misinformation now, science misinformation. I, I think applied philosophy of science is really important. Could have something to say about all of that uh, replication debate, all sorts of things where you can see philosophy of science really mattering. Um, so anyway, then I had this opportunity because I have uh, various things going on at the university here where I had this opportunity to found this uh, new new institute, uh, the Institute for Practical Ethics. And so uh, the sociologist uh, John Evans and I, we co-founded this with, with our dean, uh, Christina Della Coletta. And that's really kind of, you know, that's a big job trying to set up a new institute. But what's really been really super cool about it is that it then puts me into contact with all of these people that I never would have been in contact with before. And so I meet all of these really interesting biologists working on mosquitoes, working on gene drives so that they can't transmit malaria. I work with people working on neurodiversity. I work with, you know people who work on you know genetics and conservation uh all these different areas and so it's really um so if you find yourself in the right environment then it's harder to resist the urge to do some research in these areas and so that's you know i've been taking up a lot of my time lately is diving into all of that
1: how's the experience of environmental ethics been seeing the state of the climate just devolve
0: um yeah, I mean that. I always tell the students that's why I, I I teach environmental ethics because basically so I can meet them because it's so depressing when you think about it. That, I mean, you know the all 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 the all the major um, emitters have done you know nothing, 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 nothing. The more we know, the more not the less we've done in a way, uh, and. Same with all the environmental problems, you know, so once the, uh, you know, so if you look at like the plastic pollution issue, then what, you know, as soon as it gets recognized as a real problem, what happens, we put out more plastic and more and more and more and more. And so, it's, so all the issues are just getting worse and worse and worse, but on the other hand, you know, some of the students are just amazing and they sometimes give me a little, you know, a bit of hope uh, so, I was, I remember teaching, I was teaching at Scripps Oceanography in this kind of ethics boot camp, and uh, one of the students, she, she went on just by herself, and ended up setting up these, these marine um, uh, MP, what are they? Uh, marine protected areas, where, you know, you're not allowed to fish, and that, and uh, uh, some island in the caribbean and she by herself basically used her diving and biology skills her social science skills and her kind of schmoozing politician skills and and set up these i, I think there are two reserves and so you know so you can't you know got stakeholder agreement from fishermen and stuff like this and get it all and so, so you see a student do something like this which you know, now these marine protected areas will be there, you know, forever, maybe. um, And we'll have a a huge effect on, well, I mean, not huge globally, but it'll have a pretty big effect on the island and the area. Um, And you think, well, that's just one, that was just one person who was under 30 who did it. And so, yeah. I try to, also, if you zoom out enough, if you look at some trends, you know, so... I don't know if it's really true because there's some well there's all these different studies but there's you know, a lot of studies showing that economic growth uh, has decoupled decoupled from emissions and so then you're not in the position of telling developing countries that oh no 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 you have to stay in the you know a kind of medieval uh, <laughs> time where you know pre-industrial time uh yeah so when when you see that those things decouple, and you see the 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 rise of solar and, and that and other renewables. Uh, so then this maybe I don't know, there's still going to be some serious impacts, I think, but uh, people tend not to do things until it's almost too late, but or it'd probably be too late for many. but uh, but there are these changes afoot, which are do give a little bit of reason for optimism. I agree with you. It is overall like a punch on the gut.
1: Yeah, it's abject fear. <laughs> do um, the, the claim of the, the, a very primitive version of it is just that there is a debate between whether innovation, technology and policy will save us versus whether you need coordinated political action that, uh, to move things forward. Um, do you think that's a fair characterization and do you lean in either direction?
0: Oh, yeah I, yeah, I don't think that the technology is going to be the, the yes. solution. I, I, I think, uh, in fact, I think a lot of that is uh, fed to us by uh, the fossil fuel industry. You know, so the fossil fuel industry is funding carbon capture in a big, 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 big way. I think that's distorting the research landscape in the, in the area. Why do they want carbon, ca- carbon capture? because it doesn't demand a decrease in emissions. The decrease in emissions is changing your behavior in some way. Uh, anything that doesn't require that, you know, allows the status quo uh, for fossil fuel. It's, uh, that's why, so I don't think, you know, so I, so I think, you know, we need to think not just does that tech, I mean, obviously if somebody came along with these like vacuum cleaners that could just suck out CO2, in an efficient way that would be you know amazing game changer but of course those things all need to be plugged in and so if you uh and if the estimates are such that those things won't be able to be plugged in and actually have net emission reductions all when all is said and done if the idea is that that technology isn't going to be around so i don't know i see sometimes i see different numbers but like you know, uh, 2040, 2050, well, then that's just saying, you know, all that investment in that then is like, I'm not saying there shouldn't be some investment in it, but, uh, you know, that if you're thinking technology is going to save you, if it's not going to start to save you into into 2050 and you can just do nothing until then, then, well, there's a lot more you're going to have to save (laughs) then at that point because things are going to be so much worse there definitely has to be modifications and um you know it, you can't just think that the technology is gonna uh, save us
1: I, I agree i mean like they'll definitely there's definitely micro technologies that are very helpful and and they have their applications their niches but i feel like the average person has a very grandiose idea of what massive technological innovation looks like and i don't think it's new either like i think every generation had a pretty wild imagination for what the technology of the next generation will look like. And, and I think it's safe to say that's not going to happen.
0: Yeah. Or I mean, maybe another way to put it, which would be more um, maybe a different would be like, in some sense, the technology is already the technology to save us is already there. So we really have I mean, what what's happened with renewables is amazing. But if you just think of the but now it's more like a kind of social infrastructure challenge or, or social norms challenge as well a kind of norms and political commitment and that uh, so yeah you know, i mean you could be putting solar farms in many places if you put uh you know you look at the amount of money that gets thrown around for all sorts of different things i mean yeah, you know, so Musk was going to buy Twitter for what? Uh, how much was that? I forgot how much that was. So.
1: Um, I, I can't remember.
0: Uh, it was huge. But if you put that much money into solar farms or yeah, something, yeah, you make a huge dent in things real fast.